Welcome to the Mothman in the Bible Belt Podcast with your host, Buck Fantastic. In West Virginia, good paying opportunities are limited and housing is unaffordable for many. This dire situation has led many to develop serious substance abuse problems. In a previous podcast episode, Community Land Trust, Rent Control, Inclusionary Zoning, and Income Discrimination were discussed as a means of making housing more affordable and attainable. None of these items are being deployed in West Virginia to address the housing situation. LendingTree recently released a study finding that West Virginia ranks fourth in the country with unoccupied homes. Yep, an 18% home vacancy rate, 162,490 homes are sitting vacant. So, who's in front of us? Alaska is number three with a 20.5% home vacancy rate. Number two is Maine with a 22.7% home vacancy rate. And Vermont, home of Senator Bernie Sanders, ranks number one with a 22.9% home vacancy rate. According to HUD's 2020 point in time count, 1,341 West Virginia adults experienced homelessness. The West Virginia Department of Education reports that 9,508 West Virginia students were homeless during the 2021 school year. With all the vacant homes in West Virginia, we might just have to bring Poor People's Army Sherry Honkala to the state to teach the homeless how to effectively take over unoccupied homes. On this episode of the Mothman of the Bible Belt podcast, I have Sarah Fox. She endured being in the foster care system as a youth and found herself homeless as an adult. Like many West Virginians, Sarah has had her share of slumlords. Sarah educates the public on self-injury awareness and has volunteered for numerous nonprofits in West Virginia. Sarah is going to share her story of survival and perseverance and how she thinks the system can work best for people in her situation. Join me, your host, Buck Fantastic, for another exciting episode of the Mothman and the Bible Belt podcast. Because 6,574 West Virginia children are currently in the foster care system, and many have no plan B in life once they become adults. Sarah, you had quite a life. You've been open about being someone that was in state's custody as a child and experiencing homelessness in a wide array of slumlords as an adult. How did you pull through all that? I don't know. And I swear, I, I, oh, I'm i feeling very conflicted right now, thinking I just want to withdraw and that I just have to be strong and self-sufficient and self-reliant. And I swear, I just don't want to be told any more about my resiliency right now, or I hate the necessity of being resilient um, or dealing with situations and the questioning supports or lack of support, particularly with the professional supports and the lack of continuum of care. 
Were there a lot of services available to you upon turning 18? If there were, I'm sure I didn't know about them. Um, I believe I had, uh, I guess that's, I'm not sure if that's one of my regrets. Um, I had inadvertently signed myself out of foster care instead of, in, you know, in or continue to stay in foster care. So I guess I turned 18 at a treatment center in South Carolina and was suddenly on my own, or I'm sure I lacked um, whatever services that there, any transitions or any services that there should be. Um, definitely didn't know of any services. <laughs> my sister, I guess, was the payee of a trust that I guess was put in my name while I was in DHHR or a trust fund that I had happened to have, and that's how I paid my bills with my first apartment. You hear a lot about young people who are in the system who turn 18, and upon turning 18, some find themselves on the street. Their their foster parents don't want to take care of them. And a lot of people don't know that currently, if you stay in foster care beyond your 18th year, you can get a bunch of services. I was just curious if you opted into those services. I mean, I know in West I, Virginia they have services. I unfortunately, I guess, was not given enough information to make the right decisions. I was discharged from the treatment center in South Carolina to my biological family. So even though my biological mother wasn't able to visit me where I, while I was uh, at the treatment center um, due to, you know, whatever the proper procedures are, um, I was discharged to my mother and my grandmother. I guess that was a little difficult living with my grandmother, who I haven't seen for years. So then I guess I moved in with my aunt. And then I get did, well, I guess, the one taboo thing or something she couldn't deal with and was taken to DHHR and um, then to Mason County Homeless Shelter. That's horrible. So, so that was the first time you became homeless? That was the first time I was at a homeless shelter. So before then, I guess I was, I guess, with friends and family or depends upon one's definition of homeless. <laughs> Growing up, I, I was um, in foster care, um, emergency shelters, and um, countless psychiatric hospitalizations. How many times would you say you've been homeless total? Depends upon the definition, probably. Well, um, HUD's definition previously, before a few years back, was it included couch surfing. Now... Now you can't be couch surfing. You have to be literally in a homeless shelter or you have to literally be on the street. So let's see. There were the various emergency shelters as a teenager. However, that fits the definition. That's um, homelessness. And, uh, you know, between foster, um, between placements. Um, then I guess there was friends and family, which I'm unsure if that would consider it be under your couch surfing um, definition. And then uh, there was Mason County Homeless Shelter. Then uh, in 2005 at Sojourners. And then more recent, then um, Mason County Homeless Shelter again, um, because I guess I was, had difficulty in the live environment that I was in. And so I guess decided I'd rather be at a homeless shelter than in that environment. Um, even if it's the people that one's living with, <laughs> if one's living an environment becomes unsuitable in any shape, way, shape, or form, there isn't really, you know, very many good options of where to go. 
Were you in a great um, home? Yes. It was called a quote-unquote independent group home. So I was living with other people. However, there was no staff on site. Were people thieving off of you or bullying you or pestering you? Or... I think I will probably just have difficulty living with strangers of whatever gender they identified. Um, especially with my trauma history or my, my personal difficulties. So at, at some point in time, the, that particular living situation become, became unmanageable for me. I had difficulty with the unpredictability of when you know, staff might be present um, or and or difficulty uh, in general of living with other people. Have you ever wound up on the street or have you just always been able to land on your feet in one of these shelters? Or I've spent very little time on the street itself. I think before I made my way to Sojourners in, in 2005, I guess I ended up uh, staying with family again until... Uh, I guess living with or three people living in a one bedroom apartment. Wow. Kind of uh, became a little unmanageable or based whatever had occurred. I kind of got into a fight with uh, um, my brother's fiance and spent some time at on suicide watch at Western Regional Jail. And then was found my way at Huntington City Mission where I was told of all things that I couldn't do and didn't think I was given a proper orientation, walked the streets, maybe around Veterans Day, and somehow found my way back to Charleston and to Sojourners. Wow. How would you rate homeless service providers that have helped you along the way? Were they beneficial? Did they help you become more self-sufficient, stand on your own two feet, or were they just ineffective? I have no idea how to best rate homeless services, is homeless services and providers. I think, you know, in more rural areas, I get, or sometimes you have to travel um, to go to the nearest homeless shelter, you know, such as, you know, in Roan, you know, Roan County, for instance, stuff, you know, probably have to find what shelter one can travel to that might have a bed. Um, my relationship with the uh, women's shelter here in Charleston has been very rocky. And in 2005, I probably spent more time at crisis, pressed air crisis recovery unit or mental health services than I did within the shelter. And yes, I'm sure I probably did have uh, issues with stuff and issues with some of the staff back then in 2005, if I can remember correctly. Most recently, staff and or the organization may not be as trauma-informed as we would like. And uh, more recently, I guess I did have difficulty lasting longer than six hours at the shelter. <laughs> um, that was Sojourners? It was. So how did they help you, or did they help you, I should say? I, I did have a good, did develop a, a relationship with the aftercare specialist until she retired and had the privilege of volunteering for YWCA and YWC Sojourners in the past. And then I think I utilized the readiness center after after I found a housing or post-resident. 
I was featured as one of the YWCA Sojourner Success Stories, uh, and I'd have to double-check the year and look at the article again. How could they improve services, in your opinion? I think I understood that I had a call at the crisis, the CAT team, the crisis assessment team, mm-hmm. or I guess I was supposedly supposed to make arrangements before going to uh, Sojourners. Then, of course, uh, since we're um, after, we're, we're, I, I don't know when we'll be post-pandemic, but we're after COVID, I guess, at least, um, and COVID still with us, I guess. Um, however, um, I also understood that I had to have a negative COVID test to go to the shelter. So I was trying to figure out how to get that on a Friday evening. Um, and Med Express was closed or there just didn't seem to be a lot of uh, good places to get it without going to the ER. And then once I finally found my way there, I just kind of experienced just being, I guess, yelled at or maybe they just want trauma-informed or I, I, maybe it would be that nice if they if there was like a... On-the-call crisis specialist? Oh, on the call, on, yeah, on-call crisis specialist or some somebody available to assist the person in a more trauma-informed, understanding manner than to just, I think I, you know, I was just being told things and, uh, you know, I'm like, yeah, here's, here's your paperwork, but if you would just look a little more into this, watch the paperwork, what you're looking for should be there somewhere. But I was just kept on being asked questions or asked to produce something that I thought I always gave them. How did you wind up at Sojourners? When I left the group home from the Mason County Homeless Shelter, I guess there was the um, housing first and the rapid rehousing ESG programs I interested I was eligible for. And through the rapid rehousing ESG program, um, I had assistance of paying my first month's rent and the deposit of the new rental once I found it. And they also assisted in um, paying my rent for a time. I think the goal was for me to get back onto HUD or Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher, which I had to give up the Housing Choice Voucher to live in the quote-unquote independent group home, which was a rental EPRAC rental assistance project. I was financially stressed around May, and... I think was feeling very defeated or questioning whether I fit the income criteria for Section 8, also known as HUD, because um, I guess the housing coordinator was suddenly uh, asking about my income and then said if I made a certain amount of income, what was it, $1,250, that I made too much and would not be eligible for HUD. I dealt with a lot of stress, failed to open the letters, and failed to make the choice between work and housing, or failed to go to any of the three orientations that were, I guess, don't, I'm unsure how much notification I was given, and each no, each orientation was on, I think, the same day, same time, and seven days apart from each other. I had lost my confidence 
and HUD or Section 8 when I moved to SASVAG from the previous rental. Do you have Anyhow, a slumlord? I don't know. I mean, other people did call him a slumlord. Um, for, I did rent from him for from 2006. Or I signed the lease in December 2005, so I guess about 2006 to when I moved out in 2019. However, I did complain about the fact that the uh, carpet was so bare that I couldn't um, vacuum it. Um, I guess I had various complaints, and unfortunately, it passed Section 8 um, with the Charleston Housing, Charleston Housing Authority's inspections. And I understood that there was nobody could tell him to provide, uh, you know, new flooring or carpeting um, that was probably a bit worn when I moved in and was threadbare after, I guess, 15 years of wear and tear. I guess I also, I guess, complained about uh, the rotting wood around the windows and whatever, whatever my various complaints were. So I think there were suggestions as far as the last inspection for Charleston Canal Housing Authority. However, it was passed. So, uh, yeah, the landlord didn't uh, didn't think that uh, there was anything they had to do. I did. I didn't understand why I was being so, or I was labeled "quote unquote" nitpicky. So back to. My more recent experience, so in May, I began paying $500 rent myself, plus all utilities. That apartment that I found on Craigslist seemed like a bait and switch. After I moved in on November 7th, I discovered that the kitchen sink leaked from the drain. I discovered that the oven didn't work. I discovered that outlets didn't work. And I have a litany of complaints about that uh, apartment or living situation. I find, of course, that habitability and decent can be subjective. Did Covenant House hook you up with that apartment, or did you find you, you found it yourself? But they didn't even like to. Did they even inspect it before you moved in? I found it myself, uh, as I guess is typical, the typical way. The Rapid Rehousing ESG coordinator did it was with me when I did the lease signing and did that perfunctory. I guess there was a perfunctory move-in inspection, perfunctory walkthrough. I guess it probably was not truly inspected or it was, pro- yeah, I'm sure that it was a rush and a perfunctory um, walkthrough or inspection. It was through that program that the initial rental assistance was provided. So your outlets aren't working. Your oven's not working. You got a drip. You have a drip in your sink basin. December 26th, uh, my pipes froze and it's, seemed that the landlady blamed me because I wasn't trickling my water. I don't think the pipes froze and I don't think the problem was in my apartment though. Did Canal Valley Collective help you? When I when I hit crisis mode of that living environment, I understood that once I was being evicted or had my quote unquote letter of eviction, then maybe I was eligible for services, I guess, through various organizations um and um i understood when i talked to people at canal valley collective that the most they can do is you know refer me to the homeless shelter or do an assessment or yeah i I, 
but they actually expected sure. you. They actually expected you to go to the shelter, leave your unit, go to the shelter, stay at the shelter instead of taking some sort of preventive measure to keep you from having to go to the shelter to begin with. The furnace went out September 23rd. Um, it's possible to have that or a lot of things probably should have been replaced or maybe they shouldn't have rented it to begin with. But the ha the furnace uh, went out no, September 23rd and whatever the promises were or text about them fixing it. Um, anyhow, on November 5th, I had um, caught through communication with the city engineer understood that if the apartment wasn't couldn't be heated to 68 degrees that it can be declared um, unfit for occupancy and so at that point in time I just thought or at around a certain point in time I started considering the homeless shelter and thinking I'd be warm at least at night or at some point in time and then especially I think I was influenced by I guess the communication with the um, city engineer and so when I had contacted Covenant Canavada Collective in November yes I understood that uh, basically I guess yes the homeless shelter and assessment was about what they can offer me many of the units um, around here don't come with many or any utilities most units I've seen in the paper are above $700 for just a one-bedroom apartment. Is this doable and, for someone um, like yourself? When I was looking for the apartment in October of 2020 from Mason County Homeless Shelter, and when that housing coordinator informed me of the HUD market rates and also informed me that that's with utilities included, there's no way. And then it be trying to make also 30% or even 40% of my income. There's no way that I, or I think a friend that I have that's disabled, can rent, I guess, what one might think of as a decent apartment. The average, you know, as far as the $600 apartment. That, or, or more with utilities that's more average, easier to find. Yeah, I can't afford that. I'm unsure if that would even be within their 30 to 40% of my income. It's a lot of people's problems, you know. Do you qualify for one of those Habitat for Humanity homes? Unfortunately, at this point in time, I do not qualify for Habitat for Humanity. Um, because in addition to one split equity, or they do not, Habitat for Humanity homes are not given away. One must ha be within a certain income limit. So in addition to making the, uh, being poor enough to qualify, one also has to be, have enough income to be able to buy the Habitat home and to make the mortgage payment. And then, of course, um, when it comes to HUD funding, maybe even with property ownership, I guess they still want one to be within 30% of one's income, which is very difficult. So if my, if my 
I'm not sure if talking that whether we estimate my mortgage might be like 580 something. And then that puts me under the 30% debt to income ratio or over the 30% income to debt ratio. So on my current, yeah, currently with my current income, I do not, I'm currently still too poor for Habitat for Humanity. Ideally, um, would you like to have your own home? Some people advise against all the responsibilities that come with property ownership. Property ownership would give me, I guess, more of a locus of control that I so much desire. While making the repairs or the property maintenance would be my responsibility. I also see that, think that I won't have to deal with a middleman or wait for a, or have a maintenance person, property owner, landlord, wait, waiting on them to make the repairs or not make the repairs. Or as I said, the middleman, I would have the ability like anybody else to do proper maintenance or to explain to myself that I am poor. It's social injustices. I can't afford to maintain my property and could be, do just as poorly as um, the landlords that the tip, typical rental system, equal or as poorly as them. And it is what it is. Um, I do understand being able to afford property maintenance can be difficult. Do you think that lack of good paying opportunities is putting a major stressor on people like you and other people who are having difficulties affording rent and affording a high quality, a higher quality apartment so they can be more I'm stably sure housed? It is a very complex issue and there's a lot of factors that lead. Um, I, I personally have been, I've been raised on public assistance. I have no idea about, or this idea of, Self-sufficiency is probably a very scary idea. <laughs> I, I guess uh, one difficulty that I currently face, I, I am currently working and the, whatever benefits working has, um, I'm sure I make more income or make, I'm sure that I have more income than I would if I was just benefits only. It is very tempting to be benefits only because even if my income would be less, it'd probably be more secure or less variable. How could you better flourish if these government programs were changed? Well, how would you change them to make them work better for people in situations like yourself? I guess I understand current, I guess the maximum um, SSI is $841 maybe. Um I think, or I, I'm pretty sure it, it, I am. I, it is very difficult to live on. I'd have to, the, the limit, um, the low limits for the Q and B limits, which I'm yet to re define what Q and B means, but it's, I guess I associate it as something to be, uh, certain within certain limits to get, uh, subsidies or assistance with insurance. <laughs> Um, the low limits, and I'd have to review what the limits are for, um, supplemental nutritional assistance program. Um, those are, it's very hard to live on those low limits of $1,000 and something before the pandemic and any increases, um, due to pandemic and whatever changes they made, 
um, or what was our 25% increase um, to um, the SNAP program or whatever. With my under-earned and earned income, I think for the longest time, I received like $15, 15 to $16, so less than 50 cents per day um, as far as SNAP benefits go. Um, and then, of course, working, I also have a lot of reviews and a lot of constant reviews. And then some of those reviews are require me to be there in person or take time off work. Or I continue to say that I'm confused about whether I should be ready at a second's call and moment's notice or whether I'm supposed to be contributing to society and working. So how do we help young people who are in state's custody not wind up in a situation like yours, Sarah? It is my personal opinion that I question whether reorganizing structures or reorganizing restructuring DHHR is the solution of itself. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot to learn or consider. I don't know how much, how in touch I am with the foster care system at this moment or what people currently within the foster care system, foster parents and wards of the state are currently experiencing. I had aged out at age 18, um, I guess sometime around 2000, 2002. <laughs> Um, did write a paper about my experience of aging out of the system back in college and, or essay, and I'm sure I wrote an essay about my beliefs and peer support or that there's probably other ways instead of, I guess, involuntary treatment or assisted outpatient treatment or the more, more options in a continuum of care, um, would definitely help. I really think it would be great that anybody who wants support can have support. You know, a continuum of paraprofessionals or a continuum of professional support instead of just relying upon one's resiliency, one's own skills, and testing natural supports. So I know that I have voiced, I guess, my desire for wraparound services. However, I think I'm often told that I'm not that level of need or level of care. And, of course, there ha there's a lack of continuum services. If I, you know, can't exact, it's difficult to find a good services coordinator. If I can find a services coordinator um, or a quote-unquote case manager, it's probably the referral case management, limited case management. Probably a high turnover rate. Many young people in the foster care system in West Virginia and all across the country will experience homelessness and poverty once they turn 18. Policymakers need to do more for these young people so they won't have to struggle once they exit the system. It's not these young people's fault they're in the predicament they're in to begin with. I want to thank my special guest Sarah Fox for sharing her story with us. I hope it provides insight into what happens when we allow young people to fall through the cracks of society. And I hope policymakers that listen to this podcast episode move quickly on reforms to help foster care children and to make housing more affordable and accessible to all. 
for Mothman and the Bible Belt podcast outlet updates, guest bios, and direct links to social media, please visit mothmanandthebiblebelt.com. Thanks for listening.